0: This is the Transportation Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale.
1: Just to try to reduce crashes and keep traffic moving smoothly, they're going to want a computer behind the wheel rather than a human.
0: If problems mean more money spent on transportation, it can hurt your bottom line. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another MarketScale Transportation Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the podcast. Make sure that you're subscribing to our various channels and going to marketscale.com slash industries for more industry-specific content from podcasts to videos, articles, and more. And if you like what you're listening to, Make sure you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to our various channels for more. So folks, on today's conversation, we're highlighting one man's vision, his Robinson R66 helicopter, and his mission for a more sustainable human impact on our planet. Peter Wilson of Three Journeys Round has dedicated his career to exploration, aviation, and traveling the world to inspire, educate, and promote the ideas of living on a better planet through sustainable development. So today we're sitting down with Peter to learn more about his project, Three Journeys Round, its intersection with international aviation, and why he has placed such importance on intersecting the issues of sustainable development, climate change, and poverty. Peter, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure getting to chat today and unpacking uh, your journey, three journeys round, and, uh, uh, you know, getting to learn a little bit more about your vision for sustainable development, as well as uh, your vision behind this project, which has intersected, uh, you know, such a large scale issue and presented it in a, a really kind of fun way, actually. So let's go ahead and break that down and learn more about your, uh, your take on these issues and why it's important to you. So. Let's start there. The issue of global poverty is one that continues to loom over our society's future. And many, including you, argue that the status of the environment and local ecosystems are deeply and intricately related to the issues of global poverty. So tell us a bit more about this issue, time you've spent researching it, and this intersection of issues, why it's so important to you.
1: Well, in in terms of the Project Three Journeys Round, the purpose of making the journeys became part of um, a project that started out with me deciding I wanted to fly a long way. Um, And at a a time in my life, which happened to be about 2015, um, I had the, once I'd sold my businesses, I had the fortunate availability of time to put together a project. And when I started looking at various routes and where I might like to fly a long way, and I started uh, talking to people, it became clear to me that to do it with a purpose was important. Um, and there the became two dimensions of the purpose which are related. One was to raise money for some some charities. But the grander view was to look through the journeys and through the eyes of the platform of the helicopter to see how people around the world were living within Earth's means or not, as the case may be. And I tried when I started out, and I got help to do that, and a mentor for what is called sustainable development from the Royal Geographical Society based in London. I was able to identify with them uh, visits that I could make as the journey progressed. And that, if you like, is how I I got one interested in, and I started researching in parallel, not just the logistics of being able to make these long-range flights, but actually Physically, what was climate change? How did the way people use land uh, on Earth affect it? And fossil fuels, which is the big one that people always talk about, diets and so on. And what was it like on different, in different parts of the world? And who could I meet to talk about it? And, and what was it like for a rural farmer in Africa or somebody in Asia, which uh, would eventually be a place I'd get to by helicopter? So that's how it kind of came together. I mean, I've always been interested in geography. My father was a geologist. Um, I've all—I decided to be an engineer uh, initially, and combining my interests, my reading of National Geographic, which is a fantastic view over the twenty or thirty years, is a fantastic view on what the world's doing. With my passion for flying, and indeed the helicopter is a low-level um, flying vehicle, so you get to see Earth from essentially low level and in some places really low level, two, three, four hundred feet. But it's not like traveling in an airliner where you see things from a very high up position. I was able to see people, see animals, follow rivers and literally follow the rivers, um, wind my way around. So it all became intertwined.
0: Have you found that the mission of the project has continued to evolve as you've done more trips Uh, And, you know, as it's had time to settle and then you've had more time to develop the creative direction as well as the educational components of the project? Well, I I did.
1: I mean, I I have honed my message, clearly. Um, But I did when I first started out um, and with help from my mentor, I did. I I set out to make some journeys and uh, very early on, I decided it was going to be three. uh, And there's kind of method in that madness, too they were going to be long range, I wanted to do something that people might have done before people have flown around the world before. But no one had flown a helicopter um, solo around Africa. So some of the journeys were pioneering in the physical flying aspect of it. But i had set out to the purpose was to inspire, educate and promote the idea of living on a better planet through sustainable development. And clearly my research in parallel, I I researched during the gaps between the, the different journeys, and I didn't know as much uh, at the beginning as I did at the end about what sustainable development was, what climate, uh, the climate change was. I did do the fossil fuel side first, and then in preparing for round, the round the world journey and between the round the world journey and doing Latin America, I really got in, into understanding how land was being used um, and different, uh, basically how people are fed and how we feed ourselves on a global scale. And how we use land to feed animals, and then how we feed on the animals, and the various impacts of more vegetarian based, not necessarily meat less, but more vegetarian based diets. Uh, and then you look at the effects of climate change superimposed on top of that, and how the different uses of lands is being affected, how the ice is melting, and how land is disappearing as the sea levels rise, how the climate's becoming more dramatic, violent even. Because it's the air is richer with um, water because it's it's hotter. You know all these things. I began to understand better as we as I progressed through it. But I had set out to have a journey, an aviation journey, uh, and I wanted to enjoy that. The logistics of planning and preparing for it, training. Um, I know a lot about flying a helicopter around the world now. <laughs> Having been right. in a lot of countries, and. At the same time, my knowledge of um, sustainable development was developing and how to land the messages.
0: So the whole project, obviously, is based around education and inspiration. What were the communities that you were targeting or who were you trying to aim this message to? Is it communities affected by these issues? Was it decision makers that could actually uh, do something more concrete about trying to uh, you know, affect change? around reducing their carbon footprint. Who are you really honing this to and why? Well, it's you start out in the beginning thinking, I, I, can, I can find
1: something out and I can say it. Then you realize that somebody like Greta Thunberg at the end, uh, sitting in, on a stool in a cold place in, a, in front of a Swedish school going on strike, will, will in actual fact, within nine months, have more of the, more of the attention of the whole world about the issue. Um, and not necessarily be welcomed by big business or others. So I I did start out thinking if I could tell the stories of people I meet who either are having a tough time of it, and through the charitable side of the work, it was Save the Children and an organisation called Motivation International who provide wheelchairs for people uh, with spinal difficulties in the third world. Um, I could tell the stories of how people are trying to get access and, and fighting for their place when they are disadvantaged. Uh, and and you could see poor people being, being helped to not be poor uh, and get their rights. But I also was able to get guided to visit um, UNESCO sites, visit um, conservation projects where people uh, were doing fantastic work and sort of world beating work to protect, for example, in in Namibia when I went to see the Cheetah Conservation Fund uh, and meet people who are looking after what essentially is an animal that is being squeezed out. And it's an example of lots of animals, big megafauna that's being squeezed out. So I was able to visit different charitable organisations and different eco-tourism systems. Uh, Usually they're based around, in, in different parts of the world, around some fabulous ecosystem that's been identified some scientific research has been done about it. And then the local government or the national government in the area said, you know what, we need to look after this. And that whole process of being able to see it, talk about it, um, write about it, which is what I've done in the end, writing books, uh, making presentations, sticking videos up and so on and showing people. I I will talk to schools, so influencing children now um, so that they try and do a better job than perhaps we've done or the people before us have done because they're armed with the knowledge that it that it is very important to do something about it. And if I get a chance, I'll talk to any big businessman. I mean, I've changed the way I live now. I'm more vegetarian than I've ever been. I still eat meat. But I've gone from sort of the every day to once a week to once a month for some things. I drive a trick vehicle. And People say I still fly a helicopter, but I'm I'm dealing with that too. I offset all my, my fossil fuel use at the moment. And I beg the question, you know, what are we going to do about all of these things? It's not doable overnight, and there are massive employment bases that are dependent on uh, work that basically harms where we live, and somehow we've got to transition. And so that's the journey. That's the big journey. So I'm just part of a massive big picture of... Many, many other people, bigger organizations, better at it than I would say I do. But I've spent the last five years at it now.
0: So you've been flying helicopters since 1998. So clearly this is something that you love. It has become you know, your, your life to some degree. How did your experiences as a pilot affect your view of the world and sort of mold your perception of different communities, different global communities, as you got closer to starting Three Journeys Round?
1: Ooh, that's a good one. I mean, I think the, the, the length of time I've been flying far exceeds the sort of number of hours I've actually flown by comparison with recent years um, because my early love of flying came late in my life. I was about 42 years old when I first got into a helicopter and I was only flying uh, at weekends. I did all my instructor badges and was a kind of weekend instructor because I was working during the week and that's how I earned my living. But when I was able, uh, much later in life, I I could see that I, I could use this vehicle to fly and more the genesis of the actual flying was less to do with the sustainable development purpose and more to do with thinking uh, rather than just going out of a weekend and going somewhere in the helicopter, which is, you know, a nice thing to be able to do is it's it's like driving an expensive car somewhere and looking after it and talking to other people about what you've done Um, and I would fly across to France and fly around the UK I had little mini projects developing my uh, interests and so on and I I had seen people fly around the world I'd seen people fly a long way and I indeed I have friends who've done other challenging things like climb mountains and so on and I thought I'm gonna fly a long way and I'm gonna see the world from this vantage, this vantage point in the helicopter. And at that point, I don't think the helicopter had changed my view of the world. I think it was once I started flying, I could see what I had imagined would be the case that through the bubble of glass of, a, of an R66, and there are other helicopters that have bubbles like that, which is not the same as uh, say a fixed wing or the little window you get if you're flying higher in a, a commercial flight you have a, an absolutely beautiful view of what's in front of you. And given that you can fly low level, and in some of these old countries I could organize, which is one of the beauties of the helicopter, I would fly point to point. So as long as I had fuel at either end of my journey, I could land on the way, literally on the site of what I was going to see, with permissions, of course. Um, and that meant it was a very direct way of getting from A to B, which is, is the beauty of a helicopter. It has, it's a skidded helicopter, so it physically can land anywhere, uh, including on things like icebergs and so on. So the privileged view, which I think I was able to get, really matured and accelerated enormously once I started preparing for the journeys. Uh, and I took a flight into, in fact, the year before I started Africa in 2015, I, I flew to Moscow. Uh, in, in Russia. So, this is just a Europe, across Europe flight, getting used to how you manage all the paperwork. Uh, and in the months before flying the Africa route, I went, I flew up into the Arctic Circle up in Norway, again, flying single handed on that case to just get used to flying the helicopter and making everything work. And you, I was just getting more and more excited about how close to the ground you can fly and what you can see. And then if I combine that, as I did on the Africa journey, which which then matured the subsequent journeys with visits that I had planned to make, and I'd write up the story and get it out on Facebook, uh, I had people helping me do that, too. It was, it was fantastic. And, and that, I think, in terms of experiences as a pilot, you know, I was afforded a view of Earth. And once it, once I join up all the pictures I've got of Earth, you can just see the the mighty geology and geography that's visible you can fly down the wiggly rivers that you'd have been taught about in, in your geography classes at school I I just I have to pinch myself to think I've flown low level across the Sahara twice across the Arabian Desert once up I flew up the Amazon River right up from the the mouth of it all the way up to the tri-border town called Tapatínga which is a town that borders on Peru and um, Colombia and across um, across the, the fabulous forests, but being able to fly over the Greenland ice caps, not many people get a chance to do that. Low level, and at the middle point, which is nine thousand feet up, we're only three hundred feet above above the ice, just stretching out in front of you. It was fantastic, across the Okavango Moxos Plain and the Pantanal, all these all these famous and fabulous wetlands. Um, past Torres del Paine uh, in Patagonia in the very south, that, those three famous iconic peaks. We we flew right past them. Couldn't quite reach out and touch them because I didn't fly that co- close. But the volcanoes... And then when we were on the ground, I, I was able to make visits to see the the gorillas in Burunga, the cheetahs in Ochiwarango in uh, Namibia. And and I met literally thousands of people who, who tell their stories. Uh, and in, in the books I write, I... I obviously try and um, write up and show show peace, the individual meetings and and reasons for being there. But I also had totally unintended and inspirational meetings with people that I also recorded. And from that point of view, once I'd started making the journeys, the helicopter platform was fantastic. Everyone was interesting to meet, and everyone was interested in what I was doing, which was an incredible sort of circular um, and powerful way of propelling the energy that was going on during the
0: project. So why do you feel as though flying your helicopter across the globe works to gather support from others to help protect the environment and uh, educate on eradicating poverty and intersecting these issues? How do you communicate your message and use your, your global international travel as the vehicle for doing so pun intended i guess <laughs>
1: yeah well i think the the lasting legacy of it is the telling of the stories and and to do that you really have to at least write books uh, and as a minimum that's what i've done i uh, on my website i do the threejourneysround.com website i do have small videos celebrating each of the journeys and I did that as I was going. So Africa was up and then I got better at producing those videos. But recently, this year, in fact, COVID has been very helpful at keeping me inside uh, and making sure that I do write. I have written three books. And one of them is the story in words with some pictures, obviously, uh, of the journey. And it, it's 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 something that somebody who, is, who would be interested in Um, an adventure, and certainly if someone was interested in an aviation adventure, I've been told that people quite like reading that, (laughs) but it also raises the issues, you know, climate is changing and we are causing it and here are the basic causes. Uh, We've got all these organizations and bodies like the United Nations and others and all these conferences where people sign up to saying they're gonna do stuff and if they don't do it, nothing will change. And if we don't do it fast enough, that's almost, that's almost as bad uh, and seriously disappointing to those who are left behind with the mess and it's not going to take long um, for the mess to really catch up with us in terms of heating up the planet uh, from a fossil fuels perspective. And the other thing I've done in books, I've produced coffee table books with pictures uh, of, one, one book is called Earth and it literally is pictures that i've taken the best pictures that i could pick i think i think i took about fourteen thousand pictures from uh, the helicopter in, in in various guises at various levels and we managed to pick about 180 of them that are fantastic and to take a representative sample of all the journeys it's a fabulous coffee table book that just shows you both what earth is like and there are amazing areas of earth that apparently don't have anybody living in them and this is the contradiction. A lot of people say, well, it's, it's, it's populated Earth. There's a lot of people live on it and it is populated. And how many more people could, could Earth sustain? But there's large chunks of it that doesn't have anybody on it. And yet when you fly over these areas, you can see the impact we're having. The ice is melting or there is rubbish there that only got there because it was discarded somewhere else. And a, and a motion system like a current or an air current Uh, in the case of gases and so on, has moved it around. And it's all linked, and you can see that. So I've tried to represent that. And that book was graciously and flatteringly um, reviewed by Geographical Magazine, which is the magazine of uh, the Royal Geographical Society. So people are buying that to have a look at it. And the the final book I'm writing really is more of an album celebrating the people, uh, the logistics, uh, the helicopter itself, and how we managed to achieve getting in and out of and over all these countries, because it was 86 countries in total across the Three Journeys, plus all the preparation work. What essentially is a standard helicopter, um,
0: and a small one at that. So since Three Journeys Round has existed, what are some accomplishments you feel like you've gotten out of the project? What are some tangible ways you feel like uh, the excursions and the explorations and and the uh, education that comes from those actual conversations as well as what you were describing subsequent releases of of books and pictures and and educational material? How have those impacted uh, and helped spread the word? Uh, you know what are some tangible ways you feel like that has had an impact on? Connecting these issues of global poverty, climate change, uh, and sustainable development.
1: It's, well, I'm sure we're going to measure that over the years. Sure. Because the books are just out now. Uh, But uh, certainly through the people that I've met, um, I know I've changed. um, And the people around me who know me are... Moving in well, I'd like to think I influence people who are around me in a nice way But there are a lot of people (laughs) who are saying wow and the whole subject indeed of what is climate change? um, What is food security and What what is the relationship between? um, Poor people and the definition of extreme poverty is possibly the one to to Explain rather than poor people because relatively speaking. There are people who are poor in every society but the ex- extreme poverty definition is living on less than a dollar a day, American dollar a day, or the modern equivalent of that is probably about two dollars a day. And that is people who are, they have nothing, they have absolutely nothing, and they are almost systematically denied rights just because of the system they live in. Um, and it's the, uh, the potential of the unfairness of that that, is one dimension of it. But the real problem with that is how we get so many people on Earth um, like that is because extremely poor people tend to have lots of children because it's the children who are the insurance system because there is no other system around these people. They need children to work for them. They need children to support them in their old age. And when you look at the modern and developing and emancipated societies where um, the, the feminine side of it has access to health care, food in general is, is better, and there are rights, equal rights, for um, everybody, not just the, the, the sexes. You find that the woman chooses to have fewer children because with labor-saving devices and so on, they start to choose to have careers and to do things outside, like be a sports person or enjoy sports, other things to do, uh, which perhaps men previously would have had access to. Um, And that balances how many children you have. So there is no economic argument really for maintaining extreme poverty, and yet the world has large areas of it where there is still extremely, uh, there is extreme poverty. Um, And this kind of balance between how many people um, uh, use earth, which is related to the population and how it grows, and it grows if you have six children or five children per, per woman, uh, versus how people who live on Earth use it. And the debate for me, and this is what I've seen, is it's, uh, and Europeans don't like me to say this, but it's, it's Europe that cut down its forests. It's Europe that's industrialized, America followed later perhaps, but it's Europe that's started out the production of fossil fuels and the way industry currently works. And the rich um, or, or largely capable organizations, multinational organizations, are geared economically to this um, growth model that says if if you increase your profits uh, and just make sure your costs are below that and in a competitive world you have to have competitive cost base, then you can return to your shareholders. But inside there, there is no account being taken of the fact that nature is not free. And when you end up with eight, billion people or north of that living on earth how we use how people use earth starts to overconsume it and earth's ability to clean itself up tidy things clean the atmosphere make make problems that we've caused like an oil spill go away which in modest amounts it could do just gets swamped and this whole project has allowed me to see that and 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 communicate it and i'm not saying i'm the only one who's done it because There are loads of organisations that have championed these issues for many, many years. Uh, But it's a big issue now. In the five years I've been involved in three journeys round, I think, you know, my children talk about climate change. They understand what the 17 global goals, the United Nations global goals are. They know them. They get taught them in school. They get exercised, not just excited by, exercised by issues like, why aren't we doing something about this? Isn't there an alternative to plastic? Why do we, why do we keep having to buy things in plastic? And that kind of stuff, you know, that, that sort of generational change is, is now starting to happen in a sensible way rather than a, perhaps a, a sporadic or a, a, it's a group of people and they're counter the, or the conservative order of, the, of the, uh, the country. It's more widespread now so, I don't think I've done that, but I've lived through a time when Three Journeys Rounds has allowed me to see and write about it. And you, you know, the, the biggest challenge I've had Pace said to me is, why did you use a helicopter? Because it's, it's fossil fuels. And when I did do the design of the mission, we looked at what was the best way to travel through all these countries. I'd wanted to use a helicopter, but I did post rationalize it by saying, well, if I had traveled commercially or I had gone by land vehicles either trains or literally four-wheel drives and then joined up the rest of the journeys to get to all the places I was going to get to my 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 footprint my fossil fuel footprint was about the same as using the helicopter now that's not good it's a fossil fuel footprint but it but the, the Robinson 66 was an efficient machine flowing efficiently from point to point um, and I have that debate with people. They would say, well, you shouldn't have done the thing at all. Uh, and I'm left thinking, well, yes and no. Um, the machine's available. And in 10 years time, maybe 20 years time, 30 years time, the, the fuel that we use to travel will look very different. Um, the way we travel will look different. Um, and that's, that's the journey for engineers to help society get to that place. And by having these debates, vigorous or otherwise, Um, polarized or otherwise, as long as we agree that where we are now isn't where we should be, certainly if we want to add another couple of billion people, we can't all be doing this. Um, We need to go and make a cleaner way of traveling. And those debates have been ongoing ever since I started this process.
0: All right. I want to take the back half of this conversation to chat a little bit more about the helicopter uh, and some of the technology that powers your journey and your mission. So your helicopter is equipped with heli to improve the safety of the aircraft, which has been really important for you, obviously, since you've flown to so many different areas. uh, And, um, you know, that travel brings, of course, various variables that uh, have to be taken into account for your own, uh, you know, flight safety and making sure that you can maneuver the different terrains. So can you go ahead and break down some of the technology choices that have powered your helicopter and how they've supported your global flights?
1: Right. Um, when I started, I didn't have the heli SAS autopilot uh, system on board. Um, and I'll, I'll come to that story. Uh, the the helicopter is a seven hole pinnacle so it's, it's a it's a basic st- steam-driven set of instruments, and I used various equipments that I could plug in to the the voltage system. So, like I had an iPad, which I had to protect against the sun because it doesn't like the sun, and I had a, a, a various various devices that do survive well in the sun to help me do navigation from Garmin. But it, it, essentially, it was a stick flying machine, so it's manually. It's, I'm manually flying it I have to hold all the controls and the journey around Africa was solo for various reasons uh, late in the day and I'm basically heading south across the Sahara desert once I've made the short but enjoyable and first time I'd done it journey through through both France and then Spain to head into Algeria uh, coasting out of Europe for the first time which is quite an experience in a in a light helicopter flying at, at an altitude. Um, and most of my flying, most, most helicopter flying is done close to the ground, but places like Algeria uh, some of the Arab states uh, in the Middle East and indeed Russia want you to fly high, uh, and they, they insist on you flying about 7,500 feet and more above the ground. It's a long way up when you've got visual references and you're flying manually. There's no, There's no control system doing it for you so i was enjoying that my experience of being able to fly was to do exactly that was to fly this machine uh, like i would fly it from a to b uh, in my native country um, however the the <laughs> i had one of many scary experiences and i did not set out to have scary experiences i tried to do the weather forecast and be prepared and i did skill myself uh, up by flying simulators just in case i did have some Inclement weather to deal with, Um, and you try and avoid not being able to see when you're flying a helicopter, which is an unstable aircraft. Unlike a a fixed wing, Uh, you really do need to see the horizon clearly. Uh, Otherwise, the helicopter is hard to to keep upright, and that that ends that ends badly for everybody. Um, But I had a scary moment in the desert, which was essentially called a brownout. I was flying at seven and a half thousand feet and instructed to do so by uh, by the Algerian control system. And I was flying from a place called Tamin Raset, which is a town in the south of Algeria and the point of exit from that country. And I was heading towards Agadez, which is a town in uh, Niger. And for about 90 minutes, it was a clear blue sky day when I started out, but for about uh, 90 minutes, I found myself absolutely consumed at seven and a half thousand feet by this um, dust cloud that had risen high. Uh, And it just came up and up and up and you couldn't really tell it was doing that. I had no experience of it and the weather forecast didn't seem to warn against anything like that. And that frightened me basically. I was skilled enough to stay upright and I was lucky enough to keep within the parameters of the ship and all the post analysis of my tracking devices and my GPS showed that I was um, flying all over the place although tending to get towards um, Agadez. And when I landed there, I was just it, the helicopter was completely covered in dust. I looked like I was a, one of these desert rats from the, the war days wearing goggles. My sunglasses was, <laughs> Behind my sunglasses was the only part of me that was, that was my normal skin color. The rest of me was covered in <laughs> dust. It took Love ages. It. Yeah, it took ages with the guys around to help me clean the helicopter out. And no, other, no damage to the helicopter. And even in maintenance now, we still find dust that was clearly deposited during that flight all those years ago. But when I um, got back after the Africa trip, um, which was successful, and I'd experienced more low visibility conditions, both in the desert coming home across the Sudan. And uh, the classic low visibility is when you get into sort of misty, foggy type conditions, which you try to avoid. Uh, which Africa doesn't have a lot of, but it does have hazy conditions. I talk to people about how I deal with that. And if I separated that I could go in on a simulator and try and train to understand how to fly in these conditions. But the helicopter is not uh, not an an instrument um, rated helicopter. I'm not an instrument rated pilot. The helicopter doesn't have instruments to allow you to do that safely. It has enough instruments to allow you to get out of jail and part of the solution for around the world was a second pilot which my wife insisted upon and i also talked and researched and this um, product from genesis called Helisas was available and people around me said well, you've just got to try it because it gives you the stability and then it gives you all sorts of options to control your height your heading and so on so with the help of genesis it was retrofitted to the helicopter and that was Uh, an absolute game-changing difference in terms of providing a stable platform and the round the world flight went well enough we had i had another pilot with me as well that was a much longer mission Um, it was through many more countries and through many more weather conditions but when you've got two people you can share the workload and you can talk to each other and when things change as they inevitably do you get told to 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 land at an airport that's not the one you've chosen or to land on in a way or in a place, and it's raining. It wasn't when you started. It's nice to have two people, and you you can sort it. But I was so confident, having done that, that I elected to go single pilot again for um, the Latin American journey, which was uh, another north to south journey, like Africa was, rather than around the belly of the world. And as I did have two people, but the other person with me was a photographer. Um, so I'm doing all the work again, but this time the only difference was I had the autopilot, two-axis autopilot, and it—I, it's just you know it just improves the safety. It gives you, it de-stresses everything, and gives you much more time, and uh, which allows me to do photography as well. Just allows me to handle um, complicated situations much more easily because I know the helicopter is being flown. Um, so of all the pieces of equipment, when, when people ask me technically, what were the things that changed your view of how you would go around the world again, one of them was physically the autopilot. I would not fly an aircraft now on those kinds of missions without an autopilot. And not that I have the means to, to buy my own helicopter, but if I was buying a helicopter and if I was an organization going to buy it for training purposes I would never specify a helicopter that doesn't have an autopilot I think it's crazy to fly you can choose not to use it uh, and therefore give people the experience of flying an unstabilized ship which is fine but not to have it is crazy (laughs) I think and the second technology is is uh, material you get this clothing uh, the covers for the helicopter the advance in materials these days that allows you to have materials that protect the body against the sun they are odor eating so they protect you in that uh, way as well and they have uh, they're impregnated so they um, deny the lovely surfaces for mosquitoes Um, as long as you don't bear too much of your arms you get you don't get bitten so much and and the the materials that cover the helicopter were fabulous too i just thought there's is a control system which is a uh, when you look at the heli sas as it comes in its boxes it only weighs about 14 and a half pounds it's a small piece of equipment and when you think of the thinness of a piece of material the, the clever technologies and those are the things that that most impressed me and i explained to people uh, when they asked me what, what was the technology that that improved your lot while you were flying um, there were lots of little things we did to the helicopter of course you're not allowed to Bolt things onto helicopters, not legally, Uh, but there were there were all sorts of things that we made, like Velcro things to attach harnesses and to attach beacons and so on. Have things available to you, like your pins in the right place. And once you sit in something and fly it regularly, uh, if you've ever seen a taxi driver, they have everything to hand. It's because that's their work, that's their place of work. The helicopter became a bit like that.
0: So obviously, your flying mission is unique and extensive. Uh, for helicopter operators that are maybe making less intensive flights would you recommend any of those technologies as just sort of a baseline yes no why or why not
1: well certainly i would i would for the autopilot i can remember learning to fly i think it's about 22 years ago now and in those days the gps was was new and we were given maps and you would plot your, your map, and you'd you'd literally be orienteering like you would be on the ground, but you'd be doing it in the air. And we still teach people to do that. Obviously, you need to be able to read a map. But today, when you think about uh, going for a walk, you'd have a GPS, and, or even doing if you're into bicycle riding, and you're trying to find a route and, and make some, some road distance, you've, you've got this GPS. And when you think of iPads and what you can get on these intelligent phones, so just like I would, and they now do, insist on the training programs when they're teaching people to fly, and in this case fly helicopters, they, they insist that you learn how to use the GPS. You need to know how to use the map too, but they also teach you how to use the GPS. And then most people are, are going to fly on a GPS, and the only time you wouldn't be using it is if you're making a short visual flight from A to B, uh, and you don't need the GPS, you know your way. And I would say the same is coming now for the stabilization systems. The I think over the last ten years, the the development in them has 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 come of age. And over the last five years, more people have realised that these aren't um, devices for big expensive helicopters. These are devices for all helicopters and indeed all fixed wing. And I wouldn't specify an aircraft without it now. And in which case you because the equipment's on the aircraft, you teach people to use it, use it properly uh, so that it's, it is safe. As with every piece of equipment, if you don't know how to use it, uh, it's, it can be a liability. But uh, I think the, the, heli- the autopilots are fantastic.
0: All right, Peter, that more or less wraps up our conversation for the day. Just one last question for you. Is there anything that our listeners can do to support your cause, learn more? about your Three Journeys Round adventures, uh, or just get better educated on some of these intersections of global poverty, sustainable development, and climate change?
1: Well, yes, for sure there is. If you go to my website for this project, which is www.threejourneysround.com, there's an introduction page and some overview uh, material and some resources material stuff all delivered, I think, in a straightforward way that would certainly get you going if if this was a, a topic and indeed the journeys were of, of interest to you. And on the tab with the books, if you wanted to support the cause, buying Two Rotors, One Planet uh, will help. It's a story of the, and the descriptions of, of my journeys. And the foreword is by the world's busiest adventurer, uh, a Russian gentleman called Fedor Kionikov. And if you want to help and give money to charity, then all the profits for, for the coffee table books called Earth and Low Level, uh, which are nice uh, nice books telling the story in a different way, uh, all those profits go to the charities.
0: All right, Peter Wilson, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Again, we've been chatting with Peter Wilson of Three Journeys Round I'm looking forward to seeing how your journeys continue to evolve and, uh, you know, as you explore more areas of our world and spread this, uh, you know, this timely message. I'm looking forward to seeing what the impact of Three Journeys Round is going to be. So we'll hopefully be chatting again in the future, Peter. Thanks again for joining us.
1: Daniel, thank you very much.
0: And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure that you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to our various channels. If you'd like a full catalog of those channels, including contributor shows and more specific industry-related podcasts, you can go to our website, marketscale.com slash industries, peruse there, or go to our Podcast Network tab there on the website. You'll find our whole catalog of B2B industry vertical podcasts. I'm your host Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.